and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with Rajesh Nerlikar. Rajesh has more than 15 years of product management experience. Prior to becoming chief product advisor at Prodify, he was a consultant at Accenture, an entrepreneur, a product manager at two DC startups that exited, and a director of product at Morningstar. He's also currently serving as vice president of product at Savonix, a Prodify client. So welcome, Rajesh. Thank you. Excited to be here. I'm so glad to have you. So um, why don't we start way back, you know, 15 years ago or so? How did you how did you first get into product? What, tell me about your journey. Yeah, sure. So I started as a software engineer and architect at Accenture. I had done electrical engineering in my undergrad, did not want to design chips. And so I got a minor in business, went to go work at Accenture, figured I'd get a little bit of technical experience, a little bit of business experience, and uh, ended up kind of exactly uh, doing that. So um, I was working with our government clients and we built eligibility, welfare, welfare eligibility systems to, to see if people were eligible for programs like food stamps and Medicaid. Um, and I'd always been kind of interested in the consumer space. And so I just found myself more interested in understanding how our government agency clients were actually using the software to serve their citizens. And so after about two and a half years of actually like building the software and architecting it, transitioned into a business analyst role, like kind of old school waterfall, did a functional design document for like six months. Uh, and that was my first step into product. And, uh, you know, been, been doing it in some flavor of that ever, ever since, uh, you know, after Accenture ended up going to business school, transitioned in the world of startups, and then mm-hmm. mostly did startup product management for about eight, eight or nine years after that. Awesome. You know, um, we actually don't talk to so many guests who went to business school. So I'm curious after your time at Accenture and before going into products, like what, what do you think you got out of that? What, what was that like for you? Yeah. So, um, I had a great experience. I went up to, at, to school at Michigan Ross and obviously met a lot of really great folks, some of whom I still keep in touch with. Um, for me, it was about the transition to entrepreneurship. Uh, my dad started a company when I was like graduating high school and I kind of saw, I helped him out a little bit uh, and, and I kind of saw how exciting it was. And I thought I might want to do it. I tried a few things on my own in college and I just felt like I wanted some more experience and like maybe some actual like sort of foundational <laughs> education on how to like start a company. And uh, the Zellery Institute up at Michigan is like kind of their center for entrepreneurship. Uh, and they do a great job of connecting, you know, people, students across campus. And so they have programs between like business school and law schools where the law students help you like write, create the like legal documents to form a company and a great partnership with the engineering school where the pitchathons were often like cross campus and you could recruit engineers to help you with a business idea. Um, so for me, like I think looking back, I probably might've been able to make a transition into the world of startups without that, but it just really helped build my confidence and provide me with a lot of, you know, strong community and support network to, to help make that transition and get a lot of coaching and guidance along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, did you find that there were many classes that were helpful with moving into startups or was it more the center that was helpful? Um, so the center had a lot of great programs. So there were a few classes as well. So like probably the most uh, pivotal for me was VC finance. So I learned a lot about how term sheets work and how VCs are uh, think about sort of investments. Um, and that was really helpful for me in thinking about, um, you know, the, 
the fundraising process and, and sort of the collaboration with investors. Um, there was, I also, you know, another great thing about the program up at Michigan is there's a, a bunch of my classmates, I didn't know about this program when I joined, but they basically got an MBA in sustainability and they did a dual degree program with the School of Natural Resources. Mm-hmm. And that was where I really got interested in clean tech. And so there was a clean tech ventures class that I ended up taking as well, where you could kind of see what types of in- innovations were happening and, and um, you know, the way people create energy and uh, energy efficiency and all those things. And, and I actually went on to start an energy efficiency startup coming out of school and we won some money in the business plan competitions, got in, into an accelerator up in Grand Rapids. And so, uh, you know, that was a, another really, you know, there, there was definitely a, a good curriculum that went along with the entrepreneurship programs. Uh, and, and that was, those are really helpful foundational like learnings for me. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, I'm, I'm actually really interested in, in environmental as well. That's what I did before I moved into startups too. So what was the company about? How did it work? Um, it was, uh, it was uh, like every startup, it was a journey. Uh, so basically our mission was to encourage people to, to make sustainable decisions on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And we transitioned from our, you know, the business plan was really about creating like a rewards marketplace where you could get, um, like kind of like the way you might cash in your, your American express points for like, uh, rewards. It would be, you do sustainable things and then you could buy sustainable products as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we realized how complex that was going to be within the first few months of our sort of in the accelerator. <laughs> and so we pivoted really fast and we ended up building a Facebook app that lets you compare your energy usage to friends and family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I spent about a year and a half trying to sell that to utility companies and then home energy professionals after realizing that selling to a utility as a startup with no like that <laughs> you know no historical financial like records or anything uh was complicated and mm-hmm. uh um so you know I had a really great experience i learned a lot about how do you demonstrate value in the b2b2c business model and i um I got engaged after about a year and a half of doing that. And that was when I decided I would, uh, a salary would be nice. And yeah. so I joined Ben's team as a product manager at Opower, which was a company that was doing effectively the same thing, encouraging residential energy efficiency at scale with utilities. And so I was, was with him for about a year and a half before that company went public. Um, I guess about six years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say Ben, um, for any listeners who haven't listened, you mean Ben Foster. I met Ben Foster. Yep. So he's my my co-founder at Prodify, which is our product advisory firm. He's also the co-author of the book that we just put out, Build What Matters. And um, he was the first like product executive I, I worked for. And he was VP of product and design when I joined Opower. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but just, you know, struck gold because Ben had worked for Marty Kagan at eBay and he brought the sort of like, you know, Marty Kagan's school of thought over to the East coast and he brought it to the Opower product team. Um, and I, I cut my teeth, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I didn't even know the role of product manager existed until I started looking for jobs after business school. And I was like, Oh, this is like all the stuff I've been doing for years. And now I didn't, mm-hmm. now it's like sort of like captured in this role. Yeah, that's awesome. So what was it like working at Opower? What, what, uh, how big was the team when you joined and what was that experience like? Um, it was great. Let me see. I think I joined somewhere around 100 employees. By the time I left a year and a half later, we were like four, maybe 500. Wow. This was very much getting ready for like the, the IPO and we had built out a San Francisco office. Um, you know, for me, what was interesting, I ended up working on some some internal products and tools and uh, our mission was really to help improve our margins before we mm-hmm. went public to get a better valuation. 
there were a lot of things that our colleagues had been doing manually for years. And that's, you know, that's how startups go. You know, you do a lot of things that are unscalable. And then at that point, we kind of got to that, you know, realization of like, hey, now's probably the right time to make that investment and build some scalable processes and some tools to help with those things. And um, to be perfectly honest, I loved it. I feel like it's the perfect training ground for product managers because mm-hmm. you have such easy access to your users. I talked to my, my users who are my colleagues on a daily basis. It was so easy for me to go to their desk and watch them use our, our product and our internal tools and do usability testing. Uh, and they're kind of a, a friendly user base, right? We're all in it together. And uh, I learned a ton from them about, you know, just understanding their needs. I ended up watching how they did things today for like the first month or two and just observing how that worked. And I felt like that was a you know great start for, for me. Uh, and I had a lot of really great product mentors along the way, just managers who really coached me and stuff. So obviously, you know, really great experience at Opower. Yeah. Isn't it really interesting? I find like I've also spent, you know, some some time working on internal tools, um, you know, earlier on. And I agree, like it's so awesome when your your users are so easy to access and you can really, you know, um, just sit down and watch them. Uh, But I find it fascinating because I feel like um, it's not it doesn't get the same level of respect in the product world or it's, it's, it's not as sexy. I think, you know, people aren't like, yeah, I'm the internal tools product manager, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but it actually is such a great way to learn how to do products because once you're used to that, then when you go to work with, you know, um, external customers, it, it becomes so hard to uh, imagine doing it without talking to the customers regularly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and then really now that you know the value you can get out of being able to talk to a user directly, like you, you push a little bit harder to figure out how to make it happen in an external world, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so, what did you do after Opower? Um, so, you know, it's funny, you, you kind of talked about, oh, you know, internal product management. I kind of hit a little bit of that wall myself. And uh, there were two things that kind of happened. I had, as I mentioned, I kind of always been interested in more like the consumer facing product space, but also, you know, I kind of realized after listening to enough user research from our, our design and research team that like most people were responding to our message around trying to save energy, not really because of the sustainability aspects. That was a small percentage of the people, but mostly because of the cost savings of like how they could actually lower their energy bills. And um, I started doing a little bit of research on kind of the financial wellness crisis that was brewing in America and, and sort of how people were managing their money and realized it was a really interesting space. And I, I saw an opportunity uh, open up at a fintech startup called Hello Wallet in the DC area as a senior product manager. And so I went to go work for them for, for a couple of years. And uh, we made, you know, web and mobile apps that help people reach their financial goals, whether it's, you know, paying down debt, building savings, saving for retirement. And those were sold as an employee benefit. Um, and so I joined the team as a senior product manager. And then we got acquired by one of our investors about a year later. So I ran product for a year after the acquisition. And then the company that bought us, Morningstar, um, asked me to come out to Chicago and take over a couple of robo-advisor platforms in addition to the financial wellness product suite. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so you've definitely spent a lot of time trying to get people to... Uh, work against their their instincts for the short term and uh, do good things for the long term. 100%. And I consider myself so lucky. Obviously, Opower was a company that basically started on a giant behavioral science experiment. And then at Hello Wallet, we had a chief behavioral scientist. And so I learned a lot about how the human mind works and how we are not designed to think long term. And like, there's a lot of really great research in the retirement space about how if you show a picture 
you know, if you, if you morph a picture of a person to show what they might look like in 30 years and then ask them how much they want to save for retirement, they're much more likely to save more because mm-hmm. there's a concrete visual in their head of, of what, they, what they're going to look like. And a lot of great behavioral research around how if you ask them to write down what they think their life is going to look like during retirement, it's just like when that vision becomes more concrete and real, you start making more like sort of rational decisions and, and thinking about what that life is going to look like. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Is uh, how did you use that knowledge as the product was built and designed? Um, yeah, so we didn't end up doing the sort of like face morphing thing. There was a couple other uh, financial institutions that had done it, um, and but there there were a couple other behavioral techniques that that we used. Um, one of them, like the, to me, the and you know we were talking a little bit about storytelling. One of the more interesting ones for me in the robo advisor space was we had a web app, and basically um, it was a it was another employee benefit uh, at Morningstar. Where if you if you weren't sure how to invest your four hundred one k savings or just didn't have the time or interest in doing it, uh, you could sign up for our robo advisor through your employer. And so you would go through like a you know kind of an application process in our web app and, and, and confirm your choices. Um, our product, we were replatforming. It was built on a legacy tech stack that, that was, you know, 15 years, 18 years old or something like that. So um, there's a moment where we're actually trying to show you what specifically the investments would be that we would make for you if you opted into the sort of robo-advisor. And that call to the API ended up taking somewhere like 20 or seconds or 25 mm-hmm. seconds or something. And we realized that that was like really a long time, obviously, for, for a user to sit there and wait. We partnered with our behavioral science team and our design team, and we ran an experiment where we built a little animation that kind of explained what was happening in the background. Um, and it was, it was really funny. I wish I had a screenshot, but it was like a, a guy on a laptop drinking coffee. And then there was a bunch of gear spinning next to him or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it basically said like, Hey, we're like trying to optimize your social security income. Uh, we're looking at your situation and your retirement income goal. We're trying to pick the right investment portfolio for you. We're double checking all our numbers. And mm-hmm. uh, what we found just even through a simple qualitative usability test, we put both flavors in front of folks. So the current one that just had like a spinner that, that spun for 25 seconds. And then mm-hmm. this other one that had an animation explaining and being really transparent about what was happening in the background. And almost everyone said that they trusted the version that had uh, the sort of animation and the explanation a lot more. Mm-hmm. And when we put it into to the product, we saw much better conversion rates as well. Um, so just an example where, you know, the the, the behavioral science piece is, is so powerful and so great. And, uh, yeah. you know, I had a chance to work with Dr. Steve Wendell, who, who wrote a book on how to apply behavioral science in, in software design. In fact, I think he just he just released a second version of that book over the summer or earlier this year. So, um, you know, I think it's just a powerful tool for product managers to think about is, is sort of like just understanding that not everyone, no one responds in a rational manner and as much as we think they are, they will uh, when we design our products. So. Absolutely. I love that story. Um, I don't know about you, but it just reminds me of, you know, many game loading screens that I've been through, particularly the Sims, where it was always like reticulating spleens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like these yeah, exactly. are the different things we're doing right now. <laughs> yep, totally. So you've recently written a book. Um, tell us more about it. Yeah, for sure. So uh, the book is called Build What Matters. And uh, we in it, we basically explain our vision-led product management framework. Um, so let me back up and, and talk a little bit about the, the genesis of the book. Um, so, you know, I got to Morningstar, um, you know, about five years ago, and I kind of missed the startup world and sort of started advising companies on the side. And I really enjoyed doing that. And so we moved to Austin about three years ago to be closer to friends and family. I reached back out to Ben Foster, who um, 
kind of had retired the day of the IPO, Opower IPO six years ago and started doing some advisory coaching work with different product teams around the DC area. And I just was interested in how he got started and wanted to see if he might, you know, have some time to, or, you know, if I might be able to help out. Turned out it was really good timing. He was thinking about joining one of his clients as chief product officer. And so I took over the advisory practice about three years ago. Over the past six years, Ben and I have worked with about 70 companies um, uh, across you know, different industries and, and life cycle stages. And then when we combine that with our own product management experiences, we started to identify a lot of patterns in what these companies were experiencing, as well as started you know, codifying some of our best practices of what we had been talking to them about what they should do, kind of given those, those sort of like challenges they were facing. And so um, last year we got together and we, we put together the vision-led product product management framework. And the framework really has four major components. The first one is to pick a metric that your customer uh, would use to measure the success of your product. It becomes really easy to be kind of get focused on everything that has a dollar sign or NPS or usage. And like no customer cares about any of those individual metrics, even though your business does. So we all start with that to to sort of realign focus on the customer's um, value prop. Then the second step is to basically envision an experience for your customers, call it two or three years down the road, that would 10X that metric for them. How do you Mm -hmm. deliver any just game-changing value to them? Um, But to do so looking forward into the future um, and thinking not just about the product experience, but the holistic end-to-end journey. What is the triggering moment where they realize their current solution isn't working? How do they discover your product? What evaluation criteria did they use to decide whether your product was even worth trying? How did the trial go? Like, why do they keep using it? Why did they stick with you? Especially for like, you know, come contract renewal time in the enterprise space. Um, mm-hmm. And just to think about that holistic chapter uh, as, as the vision and it's a very customer centric vision. And we have a few techniques that we use to sort of pull to, that we recommend for how to express it. The third big component is then now you have that vision, work backwards from that. And it's that's like, you know, that's two or three years down the road, create mm-hmm. a strategic plan, which is like over the next, you know, two years, three years, if we were going to pick one or two really big things that the product does not have today, but that we would need in order for that vision to come to life, what would those be? And that that's yeah. what we call sort of the you know product strategy or the strategic plan. It's like a multi-year roadmap effectively, right? Yep. Um, and then the fourth component of the framework is recognizing that you can't just dedicate 100% of your time to like making the vision a reality. You've got existing customers, you've got a tech stack that's aging, you've got like all these other things you're dealing with as a product team. And so we created this cat- roadmap categorization framework that, that mm-hmm. splits time between innovation, iteration, and operation. Innovation is all the things on your strategic plan. How do you make your, your vision come to life? Iteration is optimizing, you know, conversion funnels or feature usage or all those things that have already been released or responding to customer feedback. And then operation is effectively the cost of operating modern SaaS platforms, right? It's performance, security, uptime, cloud migrations, uh, maybe mm-hmm. bugs, internal tooling, those types of things. And the, the general concept there is to, to do a top-down allocation of how you want to spend your time uh, or product development capacity. And that's largely dependent on the company lifecycle or product lifecycle and a few other factors. But those are the key factors of the framework. So we launched that last year. And then this year, uh, we decided that it would be helpful to just have all of that information in one place. And so we spent most of this year writing the book, which just came out a couple weeks ago. Yeah, well, congratulations. It's so exciting to see the book come out and be real. Um, Thank you. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm so glad that you're able to share the things that you've learned across all of your your own experience and the companies you've worked with and that Ben's worked with. I think uh, this is a real uh, contribution. What do you think 
in if you could pick one thing in the book like that you really want someone to come away with what would what would be the the overarching message yeah i think you know the framework is all about customer centricity and i think the one that we found resonates really well with folks is um the first step of picking a metric of how your customers are going to measure the value of your product. I think, you know, it, it just is so easy to get focused on optimizing your internal business metrics uh, that you totally lose sight of where the sort of value lies in your customers, which is, you know, your revenue is a trailing indicator of whether you're delivering value to your users and your customers. And so rather than just thinking about how to optimize that uh, from a business perspective, get one step further and say like, how do we just, you know, increase the the value we can deliver to our customers. And as long as we have good pricing and packaging, all of the business outcomes should follow suit. And I think that creating a focus on those metrics, um, we also use a pyramid kind of visualization structure, which is to establish the relationship between leading indicators and lagging indicators. Mm-hmm. Typically, you know, for a B2B product, for example, the key outcome for a customer is obviously ROI where they're measuring the benefits again the the costs and you know benefits for most companies typically comes in the form of either like hey I'm helping you grow top line revenue or uh, you know reduce costs inside of your business for for yep. through, through some you know mechanism and so you know you kind of have those mid layer leading indicators and then you can connect the dots between product usage uh, as the sort of like the true leading indicator and that mm-hmm. key outcome metric and that way there's always a visualization of like if we can get more people using this feature this is why it actually matters to our customers it doesn't matter that they're just using the feature, which is the metric that we're measuring. Right. It matters because that feature is delivering a value in this way. It's helping them save time. It's helping them close more deals. It's, you know, those types of things. Um, yeah. And so I, I don't, I, that, that to me has been kind of like the, the number one takeaway that I feel like has resonated really well with our, our clients and the initial mm-hmm. folks who, who read the book. Uh, and we, we, got, we got a lot of feedback from folks along the way. Yeah. Um, I think it's just because it, it orients you around the right, the right outcome metrics, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. And uh, very well aligned with what we teach as well. And, you know, in, in uh, product science, I think the, you know, finding that key user outcome and um, measuring the growth of the value you're delivering to the user is is so key. Can you share any specific stories about maybe one where you actually say, like, this is what the metric was and, you know, how we how this focused the team? Yeah, for sure. So, um for me, this lesson came to life at Hello Wallet, the financial wellness product I, I worked on uh, at the startup. Uh, when I joined, we had actually just made a pivot from being a uh, you know D to C or B to C company uh, mm-hmm. that charged like nine dollars a month for our financial wellness um, product to being distributed through employers. You know, obviously, as a you know a product person, I would join a lot of sales calls. I would do demos, and then I would kind of you know a great chance for me to hear what questions came up and what the what the customers and the sales team were talking to to these prospects about. Um, and uh, you know, as as you know, the sales team wants to keep those discussions focused on sales things that are going to help close the deal. But I, I managed a way to 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 get them to let me ask one question at the end of each of those like demos or when I joined those sales calls. And so I had to think really hard about what's the one question that would be most insightful for me as a product person to ask. And what I landed on uh, was basically asking them about their success metric. And so the question was something along the lines of, if you if you piloted this product with your employees uh, for like a year with us, and we came back to you in one year, what metric would you use to decide whether you were going to renew with us and roll it out to all of your employees? Because uh, we had a kind of a typical pilot and full rollout like model. Um, and what, what ended up happening was 
you know, a couple of things. The, the biggest thing was I, I heard a lot of different answers and every prospect had a, a different answer. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it was, well, uh, I really want my employees to build emergency savings because I'm worried that, the, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck and I, I, they need a buffer. I really want student loan debt pay down to occur because I know that that is crippling their ability to buy houses and like settle down and, and you know, those types of things. Um, I really want our employees to, to consider our new high deductible health plan because we're trying to cut healthcare costs and that's like a, you know, thing. And so, you know, all of those are great. And, um, but when I thought about the product that you would need to build to deliver on any one of those things, uh, and I looked at the competitive landscape, we had competitors that were zoomed in on just like one of those outcomes, uh, student loan debt being like a classic example. There were a ton of startups at the time that were kind of launching student loan um, pay down programs and things. And so the, the sort of like realization was, hey, we... we we have to choose what what message we want to deliver in these you know sales calls of what is the key outcome that our product delivers and i think that insight after going through a few of those sales calls helped us pick that focus area um so that's kind of one story and the other one i'll share because this is a really common question we get when we say you need to pick and document sort of what's the number one most important metric from a customer's perspective and that's kind of at the top of the pyramid we call it the key outcome Oftentimes, uh, and this happened to us at Hello Wallet as well, it's really hard to quantify. And what we learned about the value that our product was delivering to our employees is it helped people feel more confident that their finances were in order or that their financial wellness was in a good spot. Mm-hmm. That's a very subjective thing. Um, at Hello Wallet, what we ended up doing was measuring that metric uh, in a qualitative mm-hmm. way on a regular basis and using that as a way of demonstrating the value of the product because yes, we might've built emergency savings or help people pay down debt, but that actually wasn't the true reason that they were coming to the product. It was that they just wanted to feel good that they had a plan and it was in motion and that their finances were in order. And so I think when you, you I guess the key story takeaway from that story is like, just think about some of the qualitative and the sort of emotional side of the value that your product delivers as opposed to just the like hardcore numbers and the numerical side. Yeah, I love that. That, That's really great. How did you uh, design a way to to qualitatively measure that. Yeah, this was happening just as I was sort of like uh, leaving Hello Wallet. But I think if I remember right, we basically ended up with quarterly surveys that went out to the users that asked mm-hmm. that question, and then maybe one or two other ones. I think we still had NPS questions and things like that in there, but um, yeah. we, we decided we were going to add that, and then we started reporting on that with customers, and uh, you know. Uh, it becomes a lot harder to take a benefit away from your employees when you can see that it's helping them feel better about their sort of like financial situation, even if we didn't have all the hard metrics around like, you know, the retirement readiness and debt pay down and emergency savings and those things. So, Yeah. There's another thing you mentioned in there that I'm curious about, which is the the pivot from direct to consumer to um, selling into companies. Were you, uh, do you have any insight into that? Like that's, I feel like a, a, a dilemma that a lot of companies face. Yeah. So um, like I said, it actually happened right before I got to Hello Wallet. So I don't know a lot of the details around the impetus. What I what I gathered was, look, we literally were competing with mint.com at the time. And uh, our product had a lot of the same features around helping you budget and track your spending and then set goals and those types of things. And mint is a free product. However, we knew that people did not really like the ads that showed up in mint. They felt like they were kind of overbearing. Yeah. And so um, I, my, my takeaway or sort of what I gathered was um, I think we were something like $9 a month and we saw a lot of churn uh, and we heard a lot of people saying, well, 
it, it was similar to mint or close enough to mint that I felt like it would be um, better to just stick with mint. And I think we did a lot of analysis. Uh, you know, our, our founder uh, came out of the Brookings Institute and he knew a lot about sort of what was happening in the financial wellness space and the challenges that the sort of like consumer side was facing and rightfully identified that employers had a vested interest in improving the financial wellness of their employees. And uh, this was a new concept of like financial wellness. In fact, what ended up happening is um, it grew in popularity as a sort of employee benefit, and it became one of many pillars in an overall wellness program. So we were put as a pillar with financial wellness, physical wellness, mental wellness. Uh, and so we became part of a kind of a holistic wellness benefit program that a lot of our, our um, customers started rolling out to their employees. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um it resonates well for me because I've I've been a part of projects before that were in the uh, the physical wellness for uh, employees, and uh, it's fascinating and saddening how much easier it is to sell uh, to sell these wellness products to employers than it is to sell them directly to to consumers. Yeah, it really is. And I guess like for me, the key lesson learned in this B2B2C business model, like, uh, you know, Opower had it as well. And I, I sometimes refer to it as the paid behavior change, right? At Opower, the utilities wanted us to make sure that people turn down their thermostats and turn off their lights uh, at scale. Um, and it was our job to encourage, cons- you know, millions of consumers to do that. So that come renewal time, the utility looked at the, the ROI math. It was like, yep, totally worth paying Opower this much money to get this much in energy savings in the same thing happened for us at Hello Wallet with the employee benefits. Um, where where I've sort of landed on this business model is I think as soon as you introduce the customer into the product management realm, it becomes so easy to become you know be focused on all of their requests and keeping the customer happy that you know you have a finite capacity, especially as a startup you might be spending less time on the consumer experience at that time. And that's problematic because come renewal time, if the consumer experience wasn't good, then you might not try the behavior change, which is the whole reason the customer bought the product in the first place. And so I guess my best practice here is if you think this is a model, that's that's sort of how you're going to scale a business, go knock the consumer experience out of the park before you introduce a customer into the sort of picture, because, um, as soon as they do, it's going to be single sign-on and reporting and all the enterprise requirements that come with product development and selling it to like large Fortune 500 companies, uh, and you, you're going to get overwhelmed. And so I think that was, uh, you know, to me, that was a benefit of Hello Wallet. We had been in the consumer space. The product was in a pretty good spot because uh, we, we were trying to sell it direct to consumers, and it had to be consumer-grade experiences in order to get them to pay, you know, $9 a month. But it was a, it was a challenge, you know, just thinking about how to balance engineering capacity across like the customer needs and the consumer needs. Um, but I, I think the, that was kind of my key takeaway on the product management side <laughs> and lesson learned at, at Hello Wallet. Yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned among the steps, uh, going back to the steps of, of vision-led product, yeah. um, the fourth step was interesting to me as well about how you divide up time. What are some of the things that that you guys recommend and how do people figure out, you know, um, I guess sort of how do you know, if, you know, if you need to change how you're doing it and how do you help people make that change? Yeah, I guess the easiest way I would say, you know, is think back to what you've shipped in the last year or two 
and um, you know, you know, do just you do like a little gut gut check exercise of whether you feel like there was a lot of like groundbreaking things that got shipped, uh, and what the impact was to users and customers of all of those things collectively, versus what you you know might have wanted to ship during that time period. Um, and the reason that we built this uh, sort of roadmap balancing kind of technique or framework was you know, we had gone through the exact same thing. It is so easy to have your head down responding to, you know, stakeholder requests and customer feedback and bugs and usability issues that you look up one or two years later and you're like, everything we've done has been incremental changes to the product. We tweak this button. We, we've like optimized this one conversion funnel. And uh, if you don't, if you're not intentional about how you want to allocate your capacity, it becomes so easy to just respond to the things that feel urgent and burning in the moment uh, that you'll never make progress towards long-term goals. And that's really the reason we created the framework is to say, you spend all this time thinking about what the right vision is and the right experience to deliver for your customers two or three years down the road, that's it. that should be unlocking like exponential business growth. Now, don't just throw that away or put it up on a shelf and let it collect dust, which actually I've seen at a lot of companies. They have the vision and it like literally just sits somewhere and people forget about it eventually. Um, but now it's like, this is where the rubber hits the road. How do I make that vision come to life? And so we we, we have this sort of like three swim lanes or categories. Uh, and the innovation one is, hey, what percentage of our time are we willing to invest to make that vision a reality? And, and like I said, there's a lot of factors for how you might decide on those ratios. I think the number one is really product life cycle stage, right? And in the book, we kind of talk about some rules of thumbs and we have a table that's like, you know, if you're about to launch the MVP, you're pre-alpha, you haven't even like launched the product, then like vision is 100% of where, where you're doing. There's like no customer feedback to even like iterate on yet. Uh, but as soon as you launch, you know, you might flip that drastically and say like, I'm in learning mode. Therefore, I'm going to you know listen to and capture all the feedback I can get and and address a lot of it so that these customers feel like you know they're having a good experience with our product. Through that, I can learn whether those customers are representative of other customers in the market that we can get to down the road. Uh, you know, that are our first customers, but I need to verify that that other customers look like them so that we can build the right product for everyone. And then as you kind of like find that product market fit you know, the operational piece, then you start scaling the user base and the customer base, the operational piece like kind of takes over because then engineering raises their hand is like, our product's about to fall over. It was never designed for this amount of load. And, you know, there's all these database issues or whatever it is. And so then you kind of shift into like scale mode and you, most of your time is probably spent on the operational side of like getting your, your platform to scale properly as your business scales. And so, you know, there's those life cycle stages. Um, and the, the, the real intent is like, as a part of the road mapping process, before you just start slotting things in think about this allocation uh, because one of the other things we talk about in the book is like it's really hard to compare like a user story to a bug to a new feature to like a tech debt like thing that engineering is asking about it's like apples to oranges um, if you have the categorization first it becomes much easier to compare apples to apples which is like within innovation we should be able to look at our strategic plan and say yep this is the number one like feature we need to add to the product that doesn't exist today 
pretty straightforward. With an iteration, you might be able to say like, hey, there's four different usability issues we need to like prior, you know, prioritize against each other, but they're all usability issues and it becomes a lot more straightforward to, to prioritize those against each other. Uh, and then similarly for like, you know, platform health and those types of things, uh, uptime security performance, it's much easier to like compare like, you know, performance versus security requirements from the enterprise or space or whatever uh, against each other. And that was another reason where the, the sort of categorization becomes helpful is so that you can do more of apples to apples comparison about the individual items within there. Yeah, that's great. Um, it uh, it it really resonates well, and I and the thing that to me that is sort of super meta about what you just said is that I feel like there's an element to it that's like you applying the the long term thinking that you have to coach for financial wellness to the software development, product development decisions. You know, it's like, oh, but you can't just keep focusing on the short term because in the long term, you're going to suffer. Um, so there's, it's a, that's a beautiful meta story there. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about it that way, but you're right. Like we're not designed to think in the long term. <laughs> so therefore you have to have these tactics that, that force you to think about the long term yeah. uh, to, to really get there. I mean, it literally maps to the, like, you should have a bucket, you know, like the different financial buckets and, and things that you're like putting into the, the, like the fun stuff and the long-term like retirement and the day-to-day, like, it's so perfect. It's beautiful. 100%. Great I analogy. love it. <laughs> um, so is there anything else that, that you feel is uh, something you really want our listeners to hear from you that we haven't gotten to cover today? Um. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the thing that might be helpful, just obviously our framework in the book is about vision-led product management. I think the one thing that might be helpful to do, uh, kind of explain a little bit more is just what does it mean to have a product vision? Um, and, and we've got a blog post, I can send you a link in case it's easy to put in the episode notes or yeah, whatever, but it's like, you know, the eight different ways to express a product vision. And we've seen a lot of different ones, right? And, the, and then like a, uh, you know, a good consulting firm, we've got the two by two matrix, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the dimensions are really around sort of how written uh, and, and versus verbal is it? Uh, or sorry, sorry, how like, you know, written versus like visual is it? And sort of how detailed is it? Uh, so mm-hmm. you think you see everything from like the, you know, product positioning statement, which is like, oh, you know, one sentence that has like four or five blanks that you fill in is like, this is a product for these people and it delivers this value. And unlike these other products, it's, uh, you know, this. And what we found over the years in working with a lot of teams in helping set the vision and strategy for their product is uh, that the visual Artifacts tend to resonate a lot more. I think it comes back into a little bit of product storytelling and how do you communicate in a very customer-centric way what the experience is going to look like. You know, you see a lot of great uh, design artifacts like wire flows that sort of show the flow chart plus a little mock-up of what the screen is going to look like. And you can look at that in like 30 seconds and be like, oh, I generally know what this experience is going to look like from a user's perspective. And I can nod my head and say, I understand it versus... You know, sometimes we see the bulleted list of features that that represents the product vision or some giant document that like no one reads that talks about the market and the trends and then like the then gets into the solution space. Um, and so, you know, what we, we have a couple like recommendations and hopefully they won't be surprising. But one of the ones uh, that, that, that I've kind of think has resonated really well with our clients and, and the folks that have read the book so far is we think about that customer journey vision in like kind of six chapters of the journey. 
uh, or stages. And so there's the, you know, the triggering moment where someone realizes the existing solution is not working and they're banging their head against the wall. There's that discovery stage where they're trying to like research alternatives or and see if there's a better way of doing this or a better way of achieving the outcome they care about. There's an evaluation phase where they are trying to decide what, whether it's even worth trying a new product. Then there's a trial phase uh, where you give it a shot and hopefully you feel like it's valuable enough to then move into like the long-term usage state, which is where most product teams focus is like, now I want to engage this person and make sure they're using the product forever. And then the last one is that retention. And we almost think of these as a loop, right? If you think about uh, kind of the jobs to be done switch framework, which is like at some point you, you, you fall out of love with the product. And if you haven't been intentional about knowing, like, how do I know who's at risk of, of stopping to use my product and have an experience designed for them to sort of re-engage them or, or like get them back on track, you, you might lose a lot of customers and then they're going to go into that trigger mode and try to find, you know, they're going to switch to a competitor potentially, right? And so using those six stages, we have a comic strip template that we use where you literally like sketch out in like, you know, three by three uh, little boxes, like what's going on in that person's life. You can do thought bubbles or you might just have a little sentence underneath there that describes like what they're doing. And the reason that I think it's so powerful is you're communicating a vision for what you want the end to end experience to look like for your customers, uh, you know, two or three years down the road. Um, but all of your stakeholders should be able to look at a comic strip that has like, you know, 10 or 15 boxes uh, in one minute and say, I think I understand exactly what, what you're talking about. I think our, our users or our customers would really like this. This is our users 100%. I can see this happening uh, to them. And uh, it's just such, such a powerful way of simply communicating that experience in a very customer-centric way. And then we often recommend supplementing those comic strip boxes with um, you know vision types or some mock-ups of like what the actual screen could look like. Purely from a directional perspective, I think you have to create a little bit of flexibility and say, this is not exactly what we have to build. However, it is very much directional and notional. But, you know, we might iterate as we learn more things about this, but this helps us plant a stake in the ground of like, this is what the experience needs to look like in two or three years. Now let's work backwards from that and say like, okay, let's do the gap analysis. Our product doesn't have feature A, B, and C today. And therefore we have to think about how to add those. And the product strategy piece is complicated because there are so many factors that might dictate why you sequence, you know, feature B before feature A, whether it's, uh, well, we need to get this data set that then allows us to go reach this other customer base and we can unlock in, in, you know, insane value, or there's a technical reason why this has to be built before that. And so the product strategy piece is not easy, but uh, I think the key thing I just wanted to sort of like reiterate is that the, when we talk about a product vision, we mean two things. One, it's very customer centric. Two, it's it's a very visual artifact that someone could digest in you know 30 seconds, a minute. And it's great for, for telling the story and inspiring your team about that direction and, and having the key outcome is like the, the metric of progress is helpful there too, which is like, hey, this is how we're going to generate explosive value for our users and our customers. And here's the experience that can do so. Um, so that was the one other thing that I felt was probably worth calling out from the book. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I'm curious, just sort of tactically, because, uh, you know, I've worked in some companies that have regularly created the the sort of comic strip type of, here's the story of what this user experience is. And I've worked in other companies that almost never do that. Um, do you have any tips on people getting started if they haven't ever done that before? Um, 
Yeah, sure. So uh, if you if you have designers, they'll be your best friends in this process. If you don't, mm-hmm. um, I think even some some napkin sketches are, are great. Um, we created a, a ton of resources, kind of digital resources that supplement the book. So um, if listeners want to go to buildwhatmattersbook.com, they can download a free set of resources. One of the major resources, obviously, in there is how is a template for the comic strip. There's uh, two or three examples of actual comic strips. And then there's a, a set of helpful hints for how to actually go about create crafting that comic strip story. So there are some resources available from us uh, on that site. Fantastic. And that was the buildwhatmattersbook.com, right? That's right. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, this has been so awesome. I really have enjoyed talking with you today, Rajesh. Um, where can people find you? Yeah, sure. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place. Uh, Rajesh Nerlikar. Uh, they can also find us uh, or more about Prodify at Prodify.group. And those are probably the two best ways to, to find us. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And um, if you haven't yet, go check out their book and um, check out the Prodify group. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Holly, can I do a shout out real quick? Sure. Uh, I also just wanted to thank Holly there. She does have a quote in our book and it's in the chapter all about user research. And I think Holly brings up a really great point around how you really need to be intentional about the goals of that research before you set out to do it. What are you trying to learn? And that, that dictates a lot of sort of where you're going to go. And so uh, obviously we talk about how research is so important in, in being able to craft a vision and understand your customer's needs. Um, but I just wanted to thank Holly also for, for the support in the book and uh, for, for helping us help illustrate the point. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be a part of it. And I'm so excited to see it's it's alive now. That's right. <laughs> it's That's around. Right. You can get it. It's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Rajesh. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.